You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Welcome back, everybody, to another Habitat Heroes podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we have one big, exciting announcement before we jump into this podcast. Um, you're, you followed along since January. I went back a couple of days ago and looked in January. Some, sometime January, I think we released the podcast January 29th, um, was our first interview with Kyle Hedges, uh, quail biologist for the state of Missouri, and kind of got the wheels spinning. I think so. And whenever we had him on, it was like, man, there's so much great information, so many great things that uh, that Kyle and his, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, a fellow biologist in another part of the state, um, Frank Longcarriage, those two were doing a lot of research with northern bobwhite quail, with working lands and conventional quail management, and it's one of those times where when you hear so some information out there, information that it, that could really help a lot of landowners, you say, man, how how do you get out there to help more landowners? Um, and immediately for Matt and I is like consulting. How do no we get doubt. those guys consulting? And uh, we, we want those guys on our team. Like, yeah. How, how do we how do we make that happen? And and. As you guys have listened, if you haven't listened, I would encourage you to go back and listen to all the podcasts that we've had Kyle on, Frank on. I'll, um, I'll have them in the show notes. How about okay. That? And you guys can through. hear them discuss quail management, and you'll quickly understand exactly um, how in line they are with our thoughts and our management techniques of a very holistic mindset, a very uh, – you can fo- – if you focus on one species – at the end of the day or at the end of the year when you look back, you probably aren't nearly as productive if you look at just overall land management and how you can manage the land, restore natives, um, and do basically the process of replicating nature. And that's what those guys are all about. Therefore, that's why they're some of the top quail biologists in the country. Um, and I think more and more people are hearing about it, hearing about their work and, and hopefully are going to quickly learn that um, – they understand quail management, and not just quail, though, that we cover in this podcast coming up. We cover some of uh, Kyle's techniques with dove management, how to mm-hmm. basically have tremendous success in planting and managing for doves as they migrate through in the fall. Um, and then also I know they certainly both prairie have a, chickens. Yeah, have a passion for prairie chickens and pheasants, um, a lot of things, just really any upland species, wild game bird species they are passionate about and very knowledgeable about as well and it and it doesn't go with um same thing with us what what makes our consulting company i guess a little bit different than a lot of others out there is that um two different types of consulting we kind of have this environmental restoration this land management um, native landscape restoration mindset to where that's the that's the kind of foundation but at the same time, um, we are diehard, passionate hunters as well. 
And so we come at this from a very um, different approach to where approach. we're not only looking at the research that's been done by uh, researchers, universities, cross country, but we're also making our own observations of all of our experience that we've had from hunting them to managing for them. So same thing with Kyle and Frank. Going to have to look hard to find two guys that are more diehard when it comes to upland bird hunting and, and chasing uh, feathered feathered things uh, across the plains and, and across the country. So if you haven't figured it out by now, Kyle and Frank are part of the Land and Legacy team and part of our consulting company. So from now on out, they are going to be handling and be the go-to guys for any quail upland consulting work with game birds under land and legacy so we've had some interest come um and and it's one of those services too when you look out there it's like who do you go to what do you what do you you know i'm passionate about them i want to try and get them either back on the landscape or i've got them i want to i want to increase their numbers what do i do where there's not a resource really out there to go to so bringing them on um fills that need and allows us to again expand our business and and i want to say this though too is this isn't just a yay go land a legacy thing this is a go everybody who listens because we're not here without you guys listening and passionately following along with the information that is given you know on a weekly basis and these guys are going to be adding to that and you guys are out there sharing it and helping us grow and we're just adding more if you will talent and knowledge to a team that has this platform to share it all so when you guys share it it's a win for conservation it's a win for native landscapes it's a win for bob white quail so you know we're all gaining in this and and it's just it's awesome to be able to see it grow um and know that more land and wildlife in different portions of the country that we haven't hit that much is going to be touched under the name land legacy that's right, and I think uh, one one great thing about these two is their experience with working lands, working rangelands, of managing for quail. Uh, on the first, very first podcast was with Kyle, I asked him the question, which one, if you could only do one for managing for quail, which one do you choose? And he said, I guess, I think he said, if you tie my arm behind my back and you push me in a corner, I'm going to probably pick cattle grazing over prescribed fire because you can manage more acres every year with that. Um, and, and I think that kind of brings in the whole mindset of, or I guess bring it to the forefront of, um, there are ways to make money on your ground and still improve the habitat for wildlife. And with Northern Bob White quail, especially in, in grassland uh, habitats, it's, it's very important. So, um, you're going to see some videos coming, uh, soon of these guys talking and sharing some knowledge. So check out our YouTube channel. And our social media page at Land and Legacy to see those as well. Um, but be following along because this is exciting news. And uh, there's going to be a lot of information shared in the coming months, weeks, years Absolutely. about uh, upland management. So if you guys have anybody who's interested or yourself is interested um, about these services, new addition to Land and Legacy and what we're offering um, please let us know. Em- email us at info at landandlegacy.tv. We'll be happy to get you in touch with Kyle and Frank and get something set up because, again, they're they're just as passionate about managing the landscape as we are and knowledgeable. Um, I can't wait to uh, to see how it all turns out with them. I know they're pumped up too. We It's funny, since, since really that podcast, though, kind of just dropped the bug in their ear, and, of course, they were game on from, from that uh initial point like yes 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 and we're like okay guys this is an extremely busy time of the year for us like we need to make sure we get our ducks in a row we we're prepared everyone's you know brought up to speed on the pro you know processes everything we're like let's set a date for hopefully late may june and they've been on us all right guys yeah. when are we gonna do this when are we gonna do this what's next yeah what's next and, and i think I love it's it. important also while we're talking about this growth with and adding these two quail consultants upland consultants um it's also time for us to thank you guys for sharing the podcast sharing with your friends 
and keeping us busy with consulting. Um, wrapping up the busiest time of consulting season in the spring, and we'll, of course, still do consulting throughout the summer and, and uh, fall. But generally speaking, as soon as deer season ends in the winter, and turkey season, food plot season starts in the spring. That's our busiest time. And and after this spring, we've now been in 26 states and over 35,000 acres in our two years, a little over two years of, of being uh, incorporated. So very, very busy burning a lot of tires lot of on, on <laughs> yes, but we've improved and are helping improve a lot of habitat, not from the, from the soil up, from the microbes in the soil, all the way up to the migration of the monarch butterflies. It's all, it's all getting improved. So, uh, basically summing up, got a text from, um, a group of guys over in Ohio. And one of them was just absolutely jacked up because he had sprayed out some cool season, uh, grasses fescue and his response has just been incredible from the from the seed bank and he watched from his from his house 20 some deer move across the bottom field and into these slopes and just begin feeding one night and it was like aha i've uh, done it i get yeah. it and it's like old field management to a t um, but just you know the scene is believing and, and getting those texts and everything the communication back and forth it's like man it's, it's awesome to know even when you you leave a property, that work is still getting done and it's being improved. So this is just the, the tip of the iceberg, and we have you guys to thank for it. The best is yet to come. That's right. That's absolutely right. All right, guys. Um, we're very excited for this podcast. As you just heard, Matt and I introduced Kyle and Frank, new Upland Bird Specialist Consultants for Land and Legacy. Met these two, gosh, a couple of years ago on a farm tour, uh, a pasture walk, I think is what it was called. And as soon as I heard them speak on managing lands and quail, it was like, these guys get it. And at that point in time, um, there wasn't a whole lot of people talking about what they were talking about. And it was just a kind of a click, although it didn't know that our paths would cross of this significant type. Um, in the future, it was still like, those guys get it. I'd love to hear more from them in the future. And so, lo and behold, these guys have both been on the podcast over the last couple of months, um, and now they are here to offer their services to all of you. Kyle and Frank, thanks for coming on. Thanks for entertaining it, coming on board as consultants. We can't be more excited, and uh, I'm just, I just can't wait to have you guys both on more regularly, talking about Upland birds talking about doves all kinds of stuff bird hunting and bird management thanks for coming on guys thanks for having us this is frank and i'm i'm super excited to be on i'm 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 excited to be on board with you guys i have really bought into to to your management philosophy i really think it's the the wave of the future for land management wildlife management and uh, i can I can speak for Kyle, and I'll let him speak too, but I'm super excited. I know we both are. Yeah, we've been discussing this in the background for a while, and it's been a, a while coming, but we're we're happy it's finally here and <laughs> making the announcement. And we're on board, and we're looking forward to working with you guys and working with some, some folks to do <clears throat> just improve some land management, both for the land and for the birds, and everybody wins. That's right. And so, so our, our listeners know, um, this morning we actually met up in the field, shot some videos. So go and check out our YouTube channel, subscribe to it, check out our, uh, Facebook page cause the videos will be dropped there as well. Um, as we, as we were in the field, we got so busy talking that time ran out. So we are now doing a conference call video po- or a podcast. So we're all three in different locations. So you're going to hear me call out Kyle and Frank to speak individually so we don't talk over each other. Um, so to give you guys, listeners, a, a kind of a step back of what all occurred is um, we had Kyle on, I, th- I think, several months ago talking about um, some of the research that they've done through the Missouri Department of Conservation. And uh, conversation just started of like we had several – clients that were interested in quail as well. I was like, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there that want that information. And we, we kind of just threw out a random comment and it was kind of like, uh, I think you called me Kyle and you're like, uh, 
are 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 you serious about that? Like, uh, would you would you consider that? And it was like, yeah, we would. We'd love to have you guys. So um, here we are, and uh, couldn't be more excited. So Kyle, why don't you go ahead and introduce us again? You've done this before, but go ahead and give us a uh, a little bit of a background um, and why you're most excited about being a consultant now. Yeah, so, you know, it all started growing up. Um, my dad and brother, I grew up in southeast Kansas, and, and we quail hunted. I didn't duck hunt. I didn't, didn't bow hunt until I was out of college. We quail hunted. We fished and we quail hunted, and that was it. That's what I knew growing up. So, anyway, as I moved on, I went to college at K-State and graduated in the early 90s. And in the meantime, you know, I picked up other hobbies along the way, and and uh, but still maintained that bird upland bird hunting you know and then it's expanded on to pheasants and prairie chickens and had bird dogs had them ever since but at any rate started my professional career uh, in north central kansas at fort riley a big hundred thousand acre military reservation so it's open for for public hunting um so that started my public lands uh, management career and the emphasis was on upland birds i mean we had other stuff obviously we had deer we had turkey we even had a herd of elk we did some wetland stuff but the main emphasis was quail pheasants and prairie chickens i did that till the year 2000 then i moved to northwest missouri to work for missouri department of conservation was a biologist up there on some public land stuff again doing pheasant and quail management it's just always been my passion uh, wiped it up there, enjoyed it. I was right on the Iowa-Nebraska line, so a unique part of the state. And had the opportunity. I always wanted to be somewhere down around Stockton, Truman, Palm de Terre. Uh, I like the big reservoirs. I fish a lot. Had the opportunity to <clears throat> to promote and get a, a position down. And I'm now the manager uh, in three counties of, of public land, over 22,000 acres. And there's a land around Stockton Lake and then some 14 other wildlife areas. And again, with most of the emphasis being on upland habitat, and specifically quail. Um, do a lot of dove work as well in our district. So 20-some years of experience in this field and the last several years, <clears throat> seven to be exact, I guess, Frank and I collaborated on a big research project. And Frank can talk more about that in detail probably, but um, <clears throat> that led us to a lot of findings that kind of changed our outlook. Of, and that was what I talked about on that very first podcast. As biologists, we think we know a lot of stuff and we're told this and that from our mentors. And it doesn't mean they were wrong, but over time, things have changed. And we've learned a lot with this research project, biggest project ever conducted in the state of Missouri for quail. So we're coming at things with a little different viewpoint now and changing some management and it's making a difference. That's right. I think uh, that's one of the things that's most interesting about uh, your guys' background. And, and you've heard, our listeners have heard Matt and I talk so much about cattle and and uh, different things, different practices. Like you just said, um, as you evolve as a land manager, there's certain things where you're like, oh, you need to do that. But then you may take a step back and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why have we always done it that way? That doesn't make that doesn't do what we're trying to achieve. And one of the things that, for me, growing up was always cattle and wildlife do not go, they cannot coexist. And But it was like, man, there was large herbivores of bison here and way more wildlife than we have today. What What is it that's different? They're not, bison and beef aren't that different. And it comes down to the management. And so your guys' research was like, Bingo, that's what we're looking for. Cattle and wildlife can coexist, but they have to be managed appropriately. And so now it gives landowners the ability to have a property that can make money, but also improve wildlife habitat. So, um, Frank, lead right in with that comment and give us a little bit of a a background of that research. Yeah, so um, just kind of the, the quick and dirty on the research is, you know, we were noticing that on working landscapes, so large grasslands that were managed with grazing, quail numbers were, were much higher, on um, the order of two to sometimes three times higher on those areas than on 
on areas that we were managing more traditionally with food plots and, and grass strips and, and shrubby cover plantings and, and not using, you know, grazing in the, in the system, but, but managing it as, as, you know, if you look at the, some of the old publications, they, they talk about quail as farm game, quote, farm game. And, and we were managing quail as a farm game, as, as a byproduct of farming, whereas quail are, are, are a shrub obligate bird that does very, very well in grassland. So we started to, to look at, at why we were seeing more quail in these grassland landscapes. And, and one of the reasons is because of the superior nesting and brood habitat that these large grassland landscapes that have usable space uh, throughout the entire year, and we'll talk about usable space a lot. It's the foundation of quail management. Uh, where, where usable space was maximized and disturbance was applied with fire and grazing, we were getting usable space almost on every acre for, you know, at least 11 out of the 12 months of the year. And so we were maximizing nesting and brood rearing cover. And so our nesting success was 13% higher on our grasslands versus our more traditionally managed areas. And that's a big difference when you're talking about a bird that relies on production and explosive reproductive potential uh, for population growth. And so it, it goes, it, what we're seeing on the ground is, is these working grasslands, these working systems, these, these farms where we're utilizing cattle and the, and where we were doing it, we didn't own the cattle. We had a permittee that owned it, but the permittee was was making money um, with superior cattle gains. We were seeing excellent benefits for quail and other grassland birds. Uh, if you were to go out the way, like we were out there this morning, the, the number of grassland bird species that were calling were were just tremendous. You know, there was just you know different species going all all the time. And so not only did, did quail benefit. And these other associated grassland birds benefit, but we're seeing superior cattle gains and people that are utilizing this um, can, can see some profit off of, off their cattle and also have great quail habitat. And that's, and that's what we want. And, and that's the story that we want to tell um, that, that quail don't have to be, or, or, or small game, whether it's pheasants, quail, or, or other small game species, you know, your, your profitability on your land doesn't have to be um, uh, forsaken or, or forgot about uh, just to have these species. You can have some profitability and also have good numbers of small game species. Perfect. I, I think that's what's so exciting because that's always been the struggle for a lot of people is how can I make money but still have great hunting? And as a consultant, Matt and I have been now, as you heard us mention earlier in the podcast, 26 states, over 35,000 acres um, in two and a half years. We've seen these farms where half is for cattle, half is for wildlife, or this quarter of the farm is for cattle and the rest is for wildlife. And there's, as you go into Oklahoma, Texas, parts of Kansas, you start seeing more of the going hand in hand where grazing is happening, where the quail are and, and, um, you get into that native landscape setting where there's uh, cor- uh, that kind of prairie setting to where there is adequate habitat as well as benefits to the cattle. But you guys specializing in quail management, upland management, Kyle uh, or Frank, I think both of you have backgrounds in prairie chickens, correct? Which one of you? I always forget. Yes, both. Both, okay. Yeah, both. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. while I'm thinking of it, um, dove management as well, because there's so many guys that love managing and doing things for doves, and you guys working um, years on public land and kind of m- mastering the art of creating dove fields for amazing shoots in uh, in September. Um, that's kind of a specialty of yours as well. And and so people hear this. Why are as a consulting company? Why other consultants being brought on is. We're not fooling anybody by Matt and I trying to do your guys' job. This is just us all bridging the gap and saying we're we're now helping landowners in every way in more ways possible um, to where 
now we have the guys that can go on your farm and say, here's how to get more quail. Um, and I think that's that's definitely something that I've always wanted to do, and it's great to have you guys on board. Frank, what is your thinking as consulting? Um, what is kind of your biggest plans or as you begin to start consulting for people, what is some of your main goals you look for, your first projects when it comes to improving quail numbers? Um, what are some of the biggest improvements somebody could make uh, that you're going to help them with uh, when you get on the property? Well, I think the first thing that, that we would bring and, and that we would do is, is, is analyze somebody's property in terms of usable space. And if, if the usable space, if they first have quality usable space for quail, and if that usable space is maximized over time. Uh, for instance, let's talk about food plots for a minute. Uh, food plots can be very important for quail. Um, they can be a very important winter food source uh, and some brood cover. But you got to think about that half of the half of the year they're fairly unusable for quail because you, a lot of times you have to plow them up, disc them up, spray them. You've got to wait for the for the crop to grow so there's a there's a period of time when that's not usable and it's only you know you only get usable space a few months out of the year but you take a grassland unit that you manage with cattle or grazing or you manage with strip disking or some other some other you know quality techniques well that's going to be usable almost um, 12 months out of the year say you burn a portion of it well it's only going to be black for a month if you burn it proper time and then so 11 months out of 12 even if you burn it it's going to be usable space so what we're going to do is is come in and analyze that usable space and see how we can increase it uh there's been quite a bit of research done that shows that that's really the only way that you're going to maximize quail abundance doing habitat management is by increasing usable space if the usable space is already there, if you already have quality usable space, you can do some tweaking to kind of get your numbers a little better, but you're not going to see significant gains. Whereas if you have a property that, that has very little usable this space and you put new usable minutes. space on the Even ground, you're going to see significant potential population increases. So I think that's the first thing that we would do is analyze the usable space, analyze the usable space over time, and see if if there is quality usable space there or if we need to add usable space. I think that's the first place that we would start. All right, so Kyle, uh, we're talking working rangeland with cattle in grassland-type settings. What do you guys – you guys obviously don't – you're not just stuck in the hole of you consult for grasslands that are managed with cattle. You can also help the landowner who's in crop ground um, – looking for more quail numbers or grouse um, or dove for that matter what are some of your uh, what are some of your goals with that landscape yeah absolutely so just between um, management of public land which a lot of it was in, in whether it was food plot or somewhat ag landscapes both Frank and I have a lot of experience in that and we don't want to make it sound like you know cattle and grass is the only way you can grow quail. Um, there are other alternatives, but certainly the usable space plays into it. But also our research yielded a lot of other information regarding disturbance regimes, um, selection of specific habitats and how it was disturbed and the use of burn units. So, you know, in the, in the ag landscapes with buffer strips and CRP fields, there's a lot of unmanaged grass in those fields oftentimes, really thick, really yeah, really cold time of winter, and there might be a lot of pheasants piled in there, but, boy, the quail just don't use 90% of that CRP field. They'll just be skirting the edges, you know. And there's some opportunities, I think, to, to increase the usability. It may be permanent cover, but it may not be technically usable space year-round, as Frank has alluded to, based on it's so thick it can't function as brooding cover. Well, then that's not usable space all summer for quail or for pheasant chicks. So the usable space concept is not only about permanent herbaceous cover. It has to be 
usable for that specific life cycle, that specific time of these animals. So I think there's some opportunities in, in ag-dominated landscapes to improve um, quail and pheasant numbers, certainly. Awesome. So I've got a bunch of questions I'm going to ask you, and it may be a one-word response or uh, I'm asking for one word, but it's just a bunch of stuff concerning quail and, and different things like that. So, Frank, sum up, and I'm going to ask both of you this, so both think of your word, and you know, maybe the same word. Sum up quail management in one word. Diversity. That was the one I was going to choose. Kyle, you got one better? Oh, that is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know that I can trump that. I'll have to go with it. Yeah. I was trying to think. Diversity, disturbance might have came in there. Um, disturbance is a good one, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, your top biggest mistakes you see landowners make when they're attempting to manage quail. Kyle? Um, in today's society, maybe food plots fix everything. Um, and, you know, maybe the part of that is um, a variety of hunting shows or whatever. But food plots fix deer management, turkey management. They think food plots will fix quail and pheasant management. And that's just not the case. It's more complex than that. How about you, Frank? Well, um, yeah, Kyle shows probably the top one another one is um in a lot of places it's reliance on woody cover and manipulation of woody cover as something that will cure the quail problems for instance um quail absolutely need woody cover they have to have shrubby thickets it's part of their life history and they use them almost every day of their life so they they need woody cover however um it's been a reliance there there's been some some push towards well if we manipulate our woody cover better if we edge feathered more we'll have more quail if we planted more shrub thickets we'll have more quail and certainly if you've got a landscape that's devoid of shrubby cover then you will have more quail if you take a landscape that has no shrubby cover and you put shrubby cover there you know you, you have the potential to have more quail because you will increase your survivability but if you have adequate woody cover and, and but if you go in and, and you do some manipulation and you say you edge feather it well you're not adding any more quail you're not adding any more coveys just by edge feathering that particular tree row or or what have you so i, I think that's been overly relied on as, as a as a practice that will help quail when um it actually is is tweaking um there's a there's a concept called slack that um, in the quail world it's Fred Guthrie published a, a book a chapter on it but it's tweaking already good habitat and hoping to to get some better results and I, that's been relied on too much. Interesting. Okay. Um. All right. So, boy, that that every time I talk to you guys, I'm like, I've never. You know, I come from a different background, so I'm like, boy, that that right there is something that happens in deer hunting as well. You take a great piece of ground, uh, it may be a part of a field or part of a slope that's already st pretty stinking good, and you try to make a great spot even better, and you make a great spot poor. Um, I've seen this firsthand on multiple occasions where... There's a little bottleneck that the deer are feeling. They feel very comfortable. They use it during daylight. Um, it's uh, it's kind of a glade, but it's uh, a little bit more grassy component with some woody structure. And But doggone it, we want a food plot there. And the f landowner puts a food plot there, and now it turns into nocturnal movement um, because they tried to make it that much better instead of just accepting it for already a great spot. Um, sounds like that happens a lot in quail uh, management as well. Um, what are some of the yeah. – go ahead. For, uh, I think that was Kyle. Oh, I was just going to add – this is Kyle. I was just going to add to that. So 
you know, one thing that made our research kind of special to us, uh, especially here in the Midwest, most quail projects are done in the winter. They focus on, and this is part of where Frank's discussion over the you know, overemphasis of woody cover comes from. People hunt quail in the winter. They see them in thickets and draws in the winter. So that's what they know. And a lot of research previously was done on overwinter survival. Whereas our research looked at production. Uh, Frank and I were both of the thought process that if there isn't quail in the first place or there's half as many quail as we would like being produced, I, it doesn't matter where they live in the winter, right? <laughs> we need to produce as many quail. Then we'll worry about getting them to survive through the winter. So people that are spending all this time doing some edge feathering, but their nesting or brood-rearing habitat is terrible. You know, that's not going to fix the problem. We've got to produce them. And your example is perfect. So somebody's messing around with that bottleneck. And that was only, I've heard you guys talk on your podcast, that's 5% of their farm, but they keep messing with that bottleneck. And 80% of their farm is mediocre to poor habitat. You could get a lot more bang for their buck working on that other 80% instead of tweaking the 5%. That's right. That's right. Mm. So many many great points brought up here. Uh, What is something like, you know, we're going back to some of the common mistakes, but for me, one of the biggest things I've always gone back to, and I guess it comes from my upbringing and, and not having a lot of money to work on the land, so we tried to do we tried to do the best we could, and we spent all our time in food plots um, because that's what magazines were telling us to do. And we would go and plow and chisel plow and disc and drag and broadcast and do all that stuff. And looking back, we were really only managing less than 2% of the farm and spending all spending 100% of the time on 2% of the of the actual acres. Uh and I I'm curious is that a common theme even in quail management? I think so. Um to some extent that yeah. that does happen. Um yep. Yeah. Oh man. Um Frank, all right, some of your give me I'm going to ask you guys, we're going species now cuz I haven't if you guys haven't heard, I know Frank and Kyle, you guys listen to some, you've listened to our podcast and um, you heard us do plant and animal um, profiles there for a while. Of course, we got too busy consulting that we didn't continue that, but we'll pick it back up this summer. Um, and But we highlighted different um, species that were beneficial for certain ways. Give me your top two favorite woody species for quail management. Oh, that'd be wild plum and um, there's different varieties of wild plum and roughleaf dogwood. Gotcha. For cover, uh, fruit production, uh, ability to have great cover even in the winter after it's lost its leaves, is that is there something else I'm missing? Well, it's, it's just got such great stem density. Uh, that's important for escape cover. It grows in colonies, so it has that sort of round shape colonies. So quail can can enter it from all sides, from 360 degrees, and they can exit it from all sides, 360 degrees. Um, it's got kind of an umbrella shape, so it's, it tends to be bare ground underneath, which facilitates movement, and it has a really good canopy over the top. Um, it's, it's excellent thermal cover in the winter because of, of – um, the leaves and the shade, but I think the I think the the real selling point on it, the real key for for quail is its is its high stem density. It really is thick. It's a thicket. It's a true thicket, and it uh, and it forms a, that colony, and it doesn't get too tall and provide perches for raptors and whatnot. So it's just it's just primo stuff. Yeah, you know, speaking of, you said umbrella. I'd like to paint this picture again. Um, for our listeners, you know, at one way or another, I was going to work it in. It's like uh, I, I'm going to work it in on every podcast, and I'm definitely not going to miss it on this one. When you describe an umbrella plant or shrub, we're talking about if you take a triangle and you uh, or a pyramid and you stick it on its top to where the girthier bottom part is up in the air, and that serves as an umbrella or a canopy to protect um, these quail. 
now the problem species, the problem child, the eastern red cedar and its encroachment uh, through most of the Midwest, is it's the exact opposite usually um, to where it's girthy at the bottom and it goes to a point up top. It's a Christmas tree shape. Uh, and that can be one of the biggest problems with it, it, it as well as its aggressive nature. Um, talk to me a little bit about the eastern red cedar problem um, and how to fix this problem, Kyle. Well, there's fortunately, there's a really easy fix, and it's called prescribed fire. <laughs> it doesn't self-sprout. Um, so if you have any kind of fire regime on your property, red cedar should not be an issue. But we all know we drive down the highways in Missouri. We see it when we go out west and hunt. Uh, eastern red cedar is a significant problem. It's a significant invader out in the rangelands in western Nebraska, Kansas, a lot of states. Uh, to the point of pretty big concern, actually. Hundreds and thousands of acres being lost. Pretty easy to control if, um, you know, again, fire, even if it has to be cut, doesn't have to be stump treated. So pretty simple to deal with. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, it just, you know, it just doesn't have a, much of a use. If you had the other necessary quail or pheasant habitat, um, it just doesn't fit in much. Now, pheasant folks are going to argue, and, and I, I'll agree, I've hunted plenty of shelter belts that had cedars in them and shot, you know, 40 pheasants blew out the end. So they will utilize them. Uh, those are very specific. Typically a shelter belt that's hemmed in uh, by crop fields and along an old homestead or something where that those cedars have nowhere to escape. Um pretty limited but other other species could have been utilized there and had the same result yeah, um, yeah I, I, I don't remember who there. used this analogy but it kind of goes with the whole homeless man eating out of the garbage just because you see him using it doesn't make it the best option gotcha. um, it's the only option yep. yeah so um kyle you got any of your favorite shrubby species or woody species in quail management uh, no different than Frank, absolutely, would be uh, the plum dog. Well, I guess I would add, you, you made it only say two, but blackberries fits in real nice and also will really significantly uh, add to the rabbit population. see a lot of rabbits uh, when there's scattered blackberry thickets around. Perfect, perfect. And I think I asked you this past podcast, Frank, but um, we're talking about species of grass. So, a lot of times in the deer world, we focus on tall grasses such as switchgrass. Um, what are some of the best options in, in quail management for grasses? Um, the, the best one and my favorite is, is little blue stem, and um, it provides an excellent nesting substrate because it grows um, in a clump form. So these these bob white hens uh, have a they're, they're perfect for, for tucking a nest under because they, they provide a, a great substrate to not only build a nest bowl but tuck an, and tuck a nest under it, but also to have some overhead protection. The, the hen will actually bend some of the, the stems over its, over its head to kind of provide some overhead protection and cover that nest up. And another thing is it, is it doesn't seem to get as aggressive uh, east of um, – you know, the Missouri-Kansas line as big blue stem, switchgrass, and Indian grass. And that's one thing Kyle touched on is we have to we have to manage our grasses. So, in fact, in most of our mixes, I'm only putting – that I'm doing for my other projects is I'm only putting a very limited number amount of grass in, in a per-pound um, basis because it's uh, – it, or grass can get away from you pretty quick if you're if you're managing strictly for quail. So because of that, I like to have little blue stem, but also cytoscramma is another good one. Um, it doesn't get too aggressive. It doesn't get too tall. Um, we we have to think about when we plant a stand of grass or, or a nesting cover for quail, we've got to be thinking down the road 5, 10, 20 years. How are we going to manage that? Uh, so we need to be diligent on the front end to make sure that it doesn't hurt us or, or doesn't hamper our management 
five or ten years down the road um, more. So, so it, little blue stem is is a really good one. Kyle, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, a good example along those lines. You mentioned at the start of this that stuff that you did years ago and you say, boy, that was stupid now, right? I mean, yep. things evolve. Science evolves. Your your wisdom and your career evolves, we would all hope, right? You get years of management, and the grass thing is right on the money. Most of us managers back in the day, we were planting, you know, these cultivars, um, native warm season grass cultivars that were created to to grow the maximum tonnage of forage for cattle. Well, we didn't know any better. We're killing out fescue or killing out brome, and we're buying these cultivars and planting them at high rates and low diversity planting. And, hey, it's got to be better than fescue. Well, unmanaged, it's almost as bad. It gets so thick, so bad. So I've been a part of those kind of things, and, I yeah, it's just part of it. We learn as we go, and I've killed out a lot of, plantings that i planted myself (laughs) and 12 years later we're killing them out to do something different because we realized we you know we that just was not the right move that was not what we need and we've hamstrung ourselves and and at the time we just didn't know any better but we weren't nobody realized what the 20-year implication was that frank just alluded to and now we do and the 20-year implication of planting Cultivar grasses and three species mixes is not good. Uh, you you almost can't do enough management to keep it usable for quail all the time. Hmm. Yeah, that to me is like, even with deer hunting, that's one of the biggest problems Matt and I have seen in last week's podcast. Twelve most over or twelve overrated uh, management. Twelve overrated things in land management. I think is what the title ended up being. I don't know. Matt always does the titles, but that's pretty much just of it. One of those was switchgrass monocultures. Uh, it's a it's a big fad in in uh, deer hunting, um, in deer management, but it really provides nothing but cover. And within a few years, it gets too thick to even be optimal cover for deer. And it certainly isn't beneficial to the quail. Um, and so, and I've heard people say they don't, they really manage it intensely. Um, the reason they like it in a monoculture is you can spray out all the weeds. Well, the weeds a lot of times is what's so beneficial to, um, to your Northern Bob White quail. Um, so Frank, tell me, we had this discussion today. People already probably know this, but when it comes to Forbes, there's one that stands among, I don't know if it's, it actually stands among the others, uh, taller than the others. But it's one of my favorites, one of your favorites. Tell me a little bit about all the benefits of ra- common ragweed to the northern bobwhite quail. Uh, ragweed. So where do I start? Um, ragweed is common. Ragweed is, is is a great quail plant. So let's let's think about it in the um, in the summertime when these quail are. Um, you know, pint-sized little guys, size of a bumblebee, size of your thumb, and 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 getting taller. These, this rest, this ragweed, whether it's common ragweed, which we have commonly around here, or western ragweed, or, or even um, the giant ragweed, provides a great canopy. It's a great canopy plant, so it'll grow up tall, and and really provide shade and and good coverage. It's a great canopy plant. It also attracts a lot of insects, and so. These quail chicks are feeding on insects almost entirely 100% of their diet for the first two weeks of their life and a substantial part of their diet throughout out the summer and even the adults too. They, they feed on insects throughout. We'll, we'll harvest quail in November that'll still have grasshoppers in them. So they're eating insects, these adults are, through, throughout the summer and fall. And ragweed is an excellent substrate for insects. And then... In the uh, in the winter time, you've got the great seed seed production of it. If it's a good seed year, it provides a wonderful seed, easy for quail to find. It's at their level; they can they can pick it quite easily. It's super nutritious. Kyle has some numbers uh, on on the nutrition of it that he quotes he quotes. And he could fill you in on that, but it's it's super nutritious and it's um, it, it it's just an, an it provides great cover great insects and, and great seed so from when quail are hatched 
through the winter until the seed runs out, it it really does uh, go hand in hand with good quail management. Yeah, and how unfair of me to talk about something so wonderful as as the ragweeds and only let one guy talk about it. So, Kyle, you got anything you want to add about it? <laughs> I don't remember the spe- specific, uh, you know, calories and, and gain from that, but I do know I remember uh, a study years ago, uh, you know, in a, a lab situation where quail are, are in cages and provide them the opportunity to eat milo, corn, soybeans, or ragweed seed, and they'll eat the entire pile of ragweed seed before they touch anything else. Wow. Now we know in the real world that they'll utilize some of those other foods because it's a quick and easy meal sometimes, and it's less dangerous, right, to eat 10 big seeds than 500 little seeds. But nutritionally, it's so far superior, and their body knows it. So anytime they can uh, take the opportunity to feed on those seeds, they will do so. Uh, wow. That's that's awesome. Um, and the reason, okay, so for the listeners, the reason why I've asked these questions is I'm basically laying out several tools that these guys use when it comes to managing for quail and other uh, and other game species, bird species. Um, talk to me a little bit, guys, about dove management and things you can do to enhance your dove hunting experience. Wow, oh, that's, that's right in your wheelhouse. All right, I'll go first. Uh, so, yeah, we've done dove management. I've, I've I've been working on it since I was in Kansas and all across Missouri and, and highly successful. So, you know, there's there's several different levels of dove management people can do, and it, it kind of depends on their goals. Um, but if you want to get real serious, uh, I'm talking big numbers, what we're dealing with. Most landowners obviously wouldn't have these kind of crowds, but, uh, you know, we will have in a 50-acre dove management complex and by complex i mean multiple crops um, and manipulated multiple ways we'll have a thousand dead doves opening day by you know a hundred hunters can kill a thousand doves the first day so a 10 bird average so pretty impressive on a private land scale obviously with reduced hunting pressure you could string that out we would hope and yeah i know i've seen the numbers and, and done some of it so you could string that out with little less hunting pressure and be able to hunt for hopefully two or three weeks and, and sustain good harvest. But it involves, I mean, it's a recipe, but it, but it works. We utilize wheat and sunflowers. There's other mixes. People can do some different stuff with some other crops. I've seen some other stuff work, but I can tell you year in and year out, wheat and sunflowers works. Um, we start burning the wheat mid-July, the first third of the wheat and what happens is and we know this from banding data we know this from harvest data uh, we know this from personal observation so doves are sight feeders first of all they want something laying on the ground they don't scratch around like a quail or a pheasant or a turkey they just want to pick something off the ground they're pretty lazy <laughs> so <clears throat> we start setting the table it's kind of like wetland management you know you don't just flood the whole wetland um, before opening day and have some of the food be 10 foot deep, that's pointless. You slowly raise the water level. Well, for, for doves, we slowly roll out the buffet. So we start out mid-July, we burn a third of our wheat. And our local doves, what happens, the locally produced doves come and feed at those sites. They start coming in. It's nice, easy pickings. First of August, we'll burn another third of our wheat. So now we've provided a new round of fresh food. Still, you got more local doves. Well, we know back to the banding data and <laughs> that some early migrants start coming. It's based on day length, not just temperature. So we start getting doves coming down, and doves imprint just like waterfowl. They remember feeding places, but they also imprint on roosts during their route. So these doves start coming down sometime in August, and they land at known roosts. And then you wake up in the morning. And the local birds that are at this known roost, off they go. So you're going to follow them to the local cafe, right? You're Okay, where are we going? Some of these doves have, are newly hatched this year, so they're out of Iowa or Minnesota or somewhere, so they maybe came with a parent. So they follow these local birds out to the local feed source. And we see this happen. We'll literally sometimes go overnight from 
200 doves to 500 doves in our field. So we know that we get these early migrants. So at the same time, we give them the second set of wheat. So now two-thirds of our wheat is burned. Um, and there's also some manipulation in between if we get rains. I mean, we get pretty diligent about this, making sure the food is always available, some different things we need to do. Then we'll mow a little bit of the sunflowers. We have, so now we're, we want to mow those you know, mid-afternoon so it's hotter and drier. You get a higher shattering rate across the land, across the ground. And by mid-August, we burn the last of the wheat. We mow another round of sunflowers, and once they get on the sunflower, that's the cocaine. They're hooked. They can't shake it. Um, and then, the, you know, last week, before the week of, before the season, we mow the last little bit of sunflowers. The table's set, and opening day, the opening few days, it's, it's amazing. And I will say that that wheat is not lost. I mean, it's used for early... Uh, draw of those birds but it's not lost during the hunt those birds remember where that is and i watch a lot of hunters on public land all swarm to the sunflower everybody wants to hunt the sunflowers because when they're scouting that's where all the doves are the last week before season right yeah as soon as the shooting starts those people that didn't want to fight the crowd and they went over to the burnt wheat here comes the waves of doves they're like oh boy let's go back to the burnt wheat so <laughs> it all gets used and it it is fun it's amazing um you can really put up some some good shoots and some fun times with friends and and some tough wing shooting and some humbling <laughs> experiences and heckling and all involved it's, it's a good time and i think that's what's so awesome about what you guys do and your backgrounds and, and your uh, your experience and knowledge is that we can now offer other ways for people to enjoy the land. Um, how many times, I'm asking myself this out loud, how many times have we worked properties where there is a field that's set up for dove hunting, even though the main property is for deer hunting? Uh, it happens all the time. I can't tell you how many farms we've been to where they're like, if I could figure out how to get some doves here so my family and friends can enjoy dove hunting before deer season really kicks off, um, help me do that. And so you guys have that ability to really help people understand the true art of planting and manipulating dove migrations to where you can have successful hunts. Um, it's just all sorts of exciting stuff. Kyle, you got something to say? No, I say this. Yeah, absolutely. It, it can be done, and, and it doesn't have to be fifty-acre, hundred-acre complexes. You know, I've seen it done on on much smaller fields in the right landscape. So, it can be done on a family farm and provide a lot of hours of pretty fun shoot. Absolutely. So, as we start to wrap this podcast up, guys, if you're interested in hiring Kyle and Frank to come to your property to help you with your uh, with your bobwhite quail or with your dove or uh, prairie chickens. Shoot us an email at info at and we could set it up and get you going to higher game populations. Um, Kyle and Frank, I'll ask Frank first. What are you guys, uh, I know you're excited, but something about consulting, you know, you'd have been with, working with the department, but now you're consulting um, with us and, and doing this sort of thing. What are some of the things you're most excited about? And and I say oh, that I, I guess I should say before you answer okay. that it doesn't have to be just about consulting it could be uh, an area of the country that you like or um, for me it's always been something that I really enjoy about consulting is seeing the property helping the landowner but come a few months later or a year later when I get a text of a deer they shot uh, with their grandkid or a, uh, a quail they shot or they sent me a video of quail coming back or pheasant that are using one of the old field management areas. Uh, that's always been my favorite. So what do you got something you're looking forward to? So that's, that's gotta be the ultimate, uh, in success, right? When somebody sends you those success pictures and, um, I have, I tell you what I'm, what I'm looking forward to the most is just seeing new landscapes and new and new country and and new challenges because when you get in a job you know i'm you know i've been doing you know relatively the same thing for for going on 15 years and i still you know i absolutely love what i do and, and where, where i'm at and where i'm doing it but you you get a a uh, a longing to to take on new challenges and to see new parts of the country i've always been enamored with upland game birds 
whether it's Bob White Quail grew up hunting to sage grouse, which I always wanted to, to hunt, and you know, seeing these these new con- these new landscapes, visiting with people, seeing new challenges. That, I think that's what I'm most I'm most excited about seeing what is out there and filling a need that I that I know exists. I know there's a need out there that that people you know want to see game birds, small game populations increase. I think there's a need, and I'm looking forward to to getting out there and and doing a part to help fill that to fill that need out there. Kyle, you got anything to add to that? What are you most excited about? Yeah, I'm I'm excited about the opportunity to to spread what we feel is is some information that I don't know has been widely spread. You know, we're both professionally trained biologists, and to be honest with you, uh, 10 years ago, we kind of felt like we were beating our head against the wall, right? A lot of these quail managers have been doing the same thing for 20, 30 years, and the grass keeps going downhill, and they kept expecting different results, which is kind of the definition of insanity, right? And it, it was nothing, no offense to any manager. We were We were part of that, but there's some new science out there. We were part of major new science for the Midwest, and we think we've got some things here that, you know, can turn the corner on some places and, and make a difference, and it's exciting to get that word out. I feel like a lot of people just have managed quail based off of old wise tales and what Grandpa said, and, and we're not saying Grandpa was wrong. We're just saying the landscape has changed so much from when Grandpa was here that you can't this is not grandpa's quail anymore. It, quail management has changed. Pheasant management has changed. And we've got to adapt to the new time and place and, and change our management. Uh, and I think Frank and I, we, we've got some of that info that we, I'm excited to share with, with the public. Awesome. Put into place. Yep. I, I'm excited to see the change you guys are able to do with, with landowners across the country when it comes to the quail and doves and all things bird hunting. Guys, thank you so much. Great to have you on board. And uh, final thoughts. You guys got anything you want to add? Uh, just thanks thanks for uh, the opportunity. We look forward to, to this new challenge and meeting as many new people as we can. Um, so thanks again for the opportunity. Awesome. Yep. yep. Thanks for bringing us on board, and we're pretty excited. Can't yep. wait to get, to get started on it. All right, hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast with Frank and Kyle and are excited about the opportunity to hear their input and more of their information uh, in the coming weeks, months, years about upland management, the places they go and and help to improve uh, for quail or prairie chickens or doves, whatever it may be. Absolutely, and and that's the cool thing about these guys and and the way that they manage and the species that they're managing, it is truly different from the whitetail upland turkey. You know, it, it's crazy. They're looking into annuals, and their management techniques are going to vary quite a bit. So, Sum up deer management in one word. Diversity? You didn't, you didn't um, hear this because it was me interviewing these two, okay. but I asked him sum up quail management in one word. And um, I asked Frank this. And I am asking you, sum up turkey management in one word. Diversity. Sum up land management in one word. <laughs> Hard. <laughs> and there, no. and there, yeah. I I, uh, I asked Frank that, and he said diversity. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. So but, if but, you guys haven't figured it out yet, yeah. it's diversity. Well, that's a cool thing. The way they achieve diversity it, it is sometimes different, though, from, from the whitetail, the turkey. The intervals of disturbances is, is much different. So there's a lot to learn. Um, from these guys yes and diversity in deer management quail management isn't five species scattered out different different parts of the <laughs> yeah. of the land it's not well, cedar tree it. monoculture <laughs> here and switchgrass monoculture there and soybeans here and a pine plantation over there yeah, yeah. it's it ain't, different it, that ain't management yeah that's neglect all right guys brother. so for you that are still with us on this podcast you'll see it on our social media page but if you want to win, since we are releasing uh, new infor- new consultants unleashing the hounds, so to speak, we, Frank we and Kyle to are going to hit the turf yeah. or hit the ground running. Um, we are giving away one of our conservation caps with the quail. Yep. Brown cap with a quail patch. Um, 
and we're giving it away. So to win this hat, whenever we release this podcast on Tuesday, um, we'll share it on our social media page. And all you have to do is share that, share that post. That's you'll, my requirement. You'll be eligible and tag to a win. friend. Yep. in the comments. So share it and tag one friend in your in the comments. And the more people you tag, if the more comments you leave with friend, you get entered as well. So blow this thing up. Let's get it out there. We're excited about it. We're excited of the impact that these guys and the addition to the Land Legacy team that they're going to have. Um, so hope you guys are excited and, and will help us out in sharing and getting some folks interested in quail management as well. Perfect. Good luck. Yep, sounds good, guys. Thanks again for always listening. We appreciate it. We'll see, see you. Ya.